0: When you felt compelled to give up something in order to benefit another or even, you know, yourself for a greater good. Maybe it's giving up some food or, or soda pop in order to, to lose weight. Maybe as a parent or a spouse, you've given up a hobby or an activity that you really enjoy so that you could make yourself more available for your family, maybe you're here at Brethren Community Church and you're a Sunday school teacher. Maybe you're a children's church worker, an Awana worker, or a, a Little Lambs leader, a youth group leader. And you've given up time your Wednesday night or your Sunday morning because you know that kids not only need to hear about Jesus, but they need to see Jesus in you as well. Perhaps you're someone who's making pretty good money but you've limited your lifestyle, not too lavish, in order that you might take that extra and contribute it to the kingdom of God. Or perhaps you're someone who has heard the call, feel compelled to live this comfortable American life, and go to a place that needs to hear the good news about Jesus Christ, a place that doesn't have a witness, or is even hostile to that witness. That's what we're going to be looking at today as we look at the Apostle Paul's inner compulsion to give up some of his own rights, if you will, in order that the gospel of Jesus Christ might go forward. And as we look at this, we might admire him. We might even be inspired by him. But at the end of the day, this is, this is where I want us to end up. I want us to be asking the question, how is it that the gospel of Jesus Christ, what he has done, how he's reached into my life, how has that changed me? And how does it change how I live for him and his kingdom? So we'll get there today. We're in 1 Corinthians and we'll be in chapter 9. So if you want to turn with me to uh got, not the gospel, the letter of 1 Corinthians, chapter 9, verses 1 through 18. We're just going to go through half of, of this chapter today. We'll get to the second half next week. But this is again Paul writing to the church in Corinth. Who says, am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are you not the result of my work in the Lord? Even though I may not be an apostle to others, surely I am to you, for you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. This is my defense to those who sit in judgment on me. Don't we have the right? To food and drink? Don't we have the right to taking a believing wife along with us, as do other apostles and the Lord's brothers and Cephas? Or is it only I and Barnabas who must work for a living? Who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard and does not eat its grapes? Who tends a flock and does not drink of the milk? Do I say this from human, do I say this merely from a human point of view? Doesn't the law say the same thing? For it is written in the law of Moses, do not muzzle the ox while it is treading out the grain. Is it about the oxen God is concerned? Surely he says this for us, doesn't he? Yes, it was written for us because when the plowman plows and the thresher threshes, they ought to do so in the hope of sharing in the harvest. If we have sown spiritual seed among you, is it too much that we reap material harvest, a material harvest from you? If others have this right of support from you, shouldn't we, uh, shouldn't we have it all, all the more? But we did not use this right. On the contrary, we put up with anything rather than hinder the gospel of Christ. Don't you know that those who work in the temple get their food from the temple, and those who serve at the altar share what is offered on the altar? In the same way, the Lord has commanded that those who preach the gospel should receive their living from the gospel. But I have not used any of these rites, and I am not writing this in hope that you will do such things for me. I would rather die than have anyone deprive me of this boast. Yet when I preach the gospel, I cannot boast, but I am compelled to preach. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. And if I preach voluntarily, I have a reward. If not voluntarily, I am simply discharging the trust committed to me. What then is my reward? Just this, that in preaching the gospel, I may offer it free of charge, so not to make use of my rights in preaching it. Let me pray for us, and then we'll get more deeply into of God's word today. So Lord, this is a word to a church in a, in a place and time, and yet it is your word to us today. So would you open up our eyes, the eyes of our hearts, to see what you have for us in this word of God today. Through your Apostle Paul, I pray that you use the words that I prepared today to speak to our hearts, to help us to follow you, Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of us, us, your sheep. You have reached down and redeemed us and made us your own. So let us live lives that honor you, that please you, and are building your kingdom and spreading your good news to a world that desperately needs. It is in your name I pray these things. So again, if you've been with us in this series through the letter to the First Corinthians, you know the subtitle of this is Grace in the Mess. And there is a lot of mess. It starts out talking about factions and divisions under leaders like Apollos, like Cephas. As, as Joel pointed out earlier, it's not that these men were looking to garner people to follow them, but just the church itself was kind of lining themselves under these leaders, creating factions. There were even some that were questioning Paul's apostleship. He was the one who planted the church there in Corinth. They were looking to human wisdom and personal pride. Paul has to address also other issues of sexual sin, divorce, He even talks about singleness. And the last time we were in this letter, we were in chapter 8, talking about knowledge that hurts. In particular, we were talking about Offering food to idols. The knowledge that people have that these idols really weren't gods themselves. But believers were going into these temples and eating the meat that was offered to these idols. And it was hurting those who had come out of this pagan background. It was taking them back to the life of idolatry that they had left. And in exercising this knowledge, this freedom, it was hurting the faith of other believers. And so Paul comes to this conclusion at the end of this chapter at verse 13. He says, therefore, if what I eat causes my brother or sister to fall into sin, I will never eat meat again, so that I will not cause them to fall. So what's interesting as you are going through this letter is that You know, it's not always this nice, neat, linear kind of thought-to-thought process. As you're reading Paul, you know, the Holy Spirit is involved, but God has not removed the human element. You kind of have this stream of consciousness that kind of goes from one stream to another. And sometimes this is warning. Sometimes you're like, well, how did we get here? It's, It's kind of like me coming home and my wife asking me how my day has been. You know, yeah, we did this. Oh, that reminds me. Yeah, we, you know, I was with this person. That reminds me of my devotion. I was reading this one. Carrie's going, uh-huh, uh-huh, uh-huh. And she's going, how do I track with that? It's not illogical, but it just takes a little bit of time. And so, as again, we've been talking about exercising right. It seems to be the gateway to Paul's defense of his own ministry. Again, there was questioning, questions about his apostleship. So when Paul starts out with his apostolic claims. Again in verses 1 and 2. It says, Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Meaning resurrected. Are you not the result of my work in the Lord? And even though I may not be an apostle to others, surely I am to you for you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. Paul kind of gives a bullet point of his apostolic credentials here in these these two verses. He says, first, says, am I not free? I'm under no obligation to any human being here. Nobody. I'm a Roman citizen. I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews. No one owns me. I have no obligation to anybody. I'm free. But number two, am I not an apostle? And the word apostle means sent one. It means sent one. And that's how he introduces himself at the beginning of this letter. I'm an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. And if you know the story of Paul, his name was originally Saul. He was an enemy of Christ, an enemy of the gospel. In fact, he was trying to inflict Great harm on those who are following Christ. He was on his way to Damascus to arrest Christians and put them in jail. And Jesus reaches down into his life, literally knocks him off his horse with a blinding light, and reveals himself. He says, Paul, Paul, why are you persecuting me? Who are you, Lord? It's me, Jesus. That must have been a very sinking feeling to be like, oh, no. I've been opposing the one who is the true Messiah himself. But God has his redemptive purposes. And as he sends a man named Ananias, Ananias doesn't want to have anything to do with this Saul guy. Jesus says to him, no, Ananias, he is my chosen instrument. Go, this man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and, and their kings and to the people of Israel. And I will show him how much, listen to this, how much he must suffer for my name. Paul is taken and turned 180 degrees and becomes Jesus' chosen instrument. In fact, in that moment, in that vision, he sees the resurrected Jesus Christ. He had already ascended into heaven. But now he is an apostle. He is one more than one of those 500 witnesses that that Paul will talk about in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 6. And then he says, empirically, he says, Are you not the result of my work in the Lord? You coming to faith is is a result of my work as as Jesus sent one. You're one of many churches. But it raises, you know, as people were raising the question of, of Paul's legitimacy in Corinth about his apostleship, it should also raise the legitimacy of their the legitimacy of their own faith. If Paul hadn't come, there probably would be no church in Corinth. And he says at the end of that that verse two says, "You're the seal of my apostleship in the Lord." Now, what were the questions about Paul's apostleship? Well, one of one of which was. Just the way he presented himself, he was really strong in his letters. In fact, they said in the second letter to the Corinthians, this is what the Corinthians are saying about him. His letters are weighty and forceful, but in person he is unimpressive and his speaking amounts to nothing. Paul somehow was not a very impressive public speaker, I guess. Somehow he didn't have the the gravitas or the the personality that they were expecting and hoping for. Could uh, this guy really be the Lord sent one, Lord, the Lord's apostle? But the other issue was this, and this may sound strange. It was his refusal to accept patronage or accept financial support. He wouldn't take money to continue the ministry there, and. For some people, that was just so strange. It's kind of like, well, look, all these other teachers in town are taking money. If Paul were a real apostle, if he was really the real deal, why wouldn't he take our money? And so there's questions of of why. Why wasn't he doing that? And here's here's one other thing uh, before we go on. Perhaps we're even asking the question, is there an office of the apostle today in today's church the original apostles were the 12 disciples right it was you know peter james john and all all the way down to judas until judas betrayed jesus and hung himself ultimately he is replaced by matthias but then that group seemed to expand expanded to even jesus earthly brothers who didn't believe in jesus During his earthly ministry. But when they saw the resurrected Jesus, they became a part of that leadership. Those witnesses of Jesus' resurrection. And they had authority in the church. God raised them up to have authority and and bring uh, leadership to the church. I would say uh, in that regard, nobody fits that office today. Because none of us have physically seen. The resurrected Jesus Christ. However, there is a sense in which their apostleship does fit in the description for today as being, again, a sent one. Those who have founded and led churches in unevangelized areas. Paul was taking the gospel to places where the, the gospel had not been heard. And it was growing multiple churches and he was kind of a pastor of pastors and kind of overseeing multiple churches. I think that is happening today. I think we're associated with some of those people to be honest with you. There's a man named Paul Romaeus in Haiti. He is a he is a godly man who has helped plant churches, who has come alongside pastors, and kind of helped those chief churches keep together, keep faithful to God's word, keep faithful to following him. I would say Paul Romaus is a modern day apostle. Someone who God has used to raise up churches, but the gospel has not gone out. I think Bob Mankaka is a modern-day apostle. God raised him up to raise up other leaders, other pastors, to plant other churches. Churches are still looking to him and his leadership. I would say he is, in by description, a modern-day apostle. But Paul goes on to say, in verse 3, this is my defense to those who sit in judgment upon me. What's, what's your defense, Paul? Is it what we just read in verses 2, 1 and 2? Or what comes ahead here? I think what he said thus far is very valid. It's true. But I think if Paul were just using that as his defense, he would flesh it out more. It seems that Paul would explain more and defend his apostleship. But the questions that have been raised have more to do of what are the rights he's not taking advantage of. And so I would say he moves on to explain his apostolic rights. Pick it up at verse 4. Don't we have the right to food and drink? Don't we have the right to take a believing wife along with us, as do the other apostles and the Lord's brothers and Cephas? Or is it only I and Barnabas who lack the right not? Not to work for a living. Who serves as a a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard and does not eat its grapes? Who tends a flock and does not drink the milk? Do I say this merely on human authority? Doesn't the law say the same thing? For it is written in the law of Moses, Do not muzzle an ox while it is treading out the grain. Is it about the oxen that God is concerned? Surely he says this for us, doesn't he? Yes. It was written for us, because whoever plows and freshes should be able to do so in the hope of sharing in the harvest. If we have sown spiritual seed among you, is it too much if we reap material a material harvest from you? If others have this right of support from you, shouldn't we have it all the more? Paul rolls out this argument in a very logical fashion. First of all, by asking three rhetorical questions. Don't we have the right to food and drink? a principle that Jesus himself lays out for his His sent ones in his earthly ministry. We'll we'll visit that a little bit later. Don't we have the right to take a believing wife? Just because you're called to proclaim the good news, the gospel, does not mean you need to abandon your wife or your family. This precedent seems to be set forth by the other apostles, which again include some of Jesus' own brothers, who wrote part of the New Testament, James and Jude, Or Jacob and Judas, as their their Hebrew names would be. And then Peter himself. You know, realize when you go out on the road, that can be a very adverse situation. And a wife can add a lot of love and support and ministry. A place of refuge, of home, if you will, on the road, especially in adversity. And it's tough. To love your wife as you love yourself if you're thousands of miles away and you leave her behind. That's why we don't recommend that if someone's going on the mission field, that they leave their family behind. They should take their wife, at least be with them. I learned something about church history this week, and maybe this interests you, maybe it doesn't, but there was a man named Thomas Cramner. He was the, he was the Archbishop of Canterbury. And he wrote the Book of Common Prayer in 1549. But in history, what's happening here in in church history is the Anglican Church is being born. Protestantism is being born. And as the the Anglican Church is leaving the Catholic Church, Thomas Cranmer actually married. It was forbidden for... Catholic clergy to marry, and so he had married, but he did it in secret because he wasn't quite sure how that was going to be received. And so everywhere he went, he had his wife brought with him in a box, in order that his wife would be with him. Now I think we've progressed since then, but that's what actually happened. Paul saying, "Yeah, I, I have that right. I have that right to have a believing wife come with me." And then last of all, his third rhetorical question, that are Barnabas and himself the only ones who don't have rights, these rights as an apostle, to I, they've got to work for a living, they can't bring a wife along with them. These guys were the original missionaries. These are the guys that went out there. They're the ones who set the precedent, but they set the precedent by kind of being self-funded, by building tents. And now things have come full circle. Are these... Are these things kept from men? Paul goes on to give three examples from everyday life. Does a soldier does he serve at his own expense? Does someone who's a vine keeper eat none of the grapes in that vineyard? Does someone who tends a flock drink none of that milk? He says, and I'm going beyond just earthly authority here. He appeals to the Old Testament law in Deuteronomy chapter five, twenty-five, verse four, says, which says, "Do not muzzle the ox." while it is treading the grain. He clarifies at the end of verse 9 and 10. It's not about the oxen that God is concerned. Surely, He says this for us, doesn't He? Yes, it was written for us because whoever plows and threshes should be able to do so in hope of sharing the harvest. Paul, you calling me an ox, man? Paul's understanding of the Old Testament Scripture it is written in such a way that it applies to certain circumstances, even though it's not specific. So he goes on to say, you know, the same principle, not muzzling the ox, applies to someone who's plowing or threshing. I guess another example would be this, and this might be much more mundane than, than what you think, but you know, in in Exodus 23. Verse 19, actually in two other places in the Old Testament. There's a command, a a food command, not to boil a goat in its own mother's milk. Okay? So, I mean, the the thought is, you know, you're trying to, I guess, have respect for life. But that applies to other animals, too. Do you know there's no such thing as a kosher cheeseburger? Up there? I mean, it. here's the thing. We're not talking about a goat. We're not even talking about whether the milk for that cheese came from its mother's milk, but it's, it's a principle that applies in the dietary laws for the, for the Jewish people. Today, you cannot sit down with a serious kosher Jew and eat a cheeseburger. Just, just FYI. But this is how Paul understands this scripture. And again, into this agricultural theme, the one who plows, the one who threshes, should be able to do so with the hope of sharing the harvest. But also Paul understands the Old Testament in light of this new covenant, this new testament, in light of Jesus coming king and uh, kingdom. And so he says in verse 11, if we have sown spiritual seed among you, is it too much if we reap material, a material harvest from you? Look, we've given our lives to you spiritually, brought you the life-giving message of the gospel. Is it such a big deal if you would actually help us out financially? That we would reap a material blessing. We make a living in our life's work. And then in verse 13, I mean, verse 12, even more personally says, if others have this right, other apostles who come to town to support from you, shouldn't we have it all the more? We who first brought the gospel to you. We who first implanted the hope of Jesus in your life. You're so willing to help. How others, shouldn't you be willing to help out us, we who are your spiritual fathers, as he talks about in chapter 4, verse 15. So clearly Paul is making a case for those who are in full-time ministry to make a living from it. But here's the weird thing about this. This is the curious thing about this. Paul makes this case that he has these rights as an apostle, yet we know he's going to refuse to use them. We know that he's going to go on as a tent maker. Being sufficient that way. We know that he's going to go on single for the sake of the gospel. What's the purpose of pointing these things out? And we move from Paul's explaining his apostolic rites to explaining his apostolic practice. Second half of verse 12. But we did not use this rights On the contrary, we put up with anything rather than hinder the gospel of Christ. Don't you know that those who serve in the temple get their food from the temple, that those who serve at the altar share in what is offered on the altar? In the same way, the Lord has commanded that those who preach the gospel should receive their living from the gospel. But I have not used any of these rites, and I am not writing this in hope that you will do such things for me. For I would rather die than allow anyone to deprive me of this post. It seems like more of the same, doesn't it? I have these rights. Let's look at what happens in the temple. Those who are in the temple, the sacrifices, they get to make a living off of that. They get to eat those sacrifices. By the way, that's a lot of red meat. I don't know if you've read through the Old Testament lately, but I've been going through Leviticus and Numbers, and now I'm just thinking, how do you eat all that? That's crazy. But second of all, he, he points to Jesus and what Jesus had said. Um, find my place here in Luke ten, verse seven says, "For the worker deserves his wages." These are principles there, and Paul still says, though, "I don't use these rights." Why? Again, back to verse twelve, we put up with anything rather than hinder the gospel of Christ. We put up with anything. Misuse, even people withholding giving to us, If people were giving to us, in order that the gospel not, might not be treated. What's implied here is, I don't want the issue of finances to get in the way. I don't want the issue of finances to get in the way. And it, finances is a, weird, is a weird thing, right? It's a weird thing. When I preach about finances and people, Pastor, you're talking about finances. What's up with that? You want my money? Isn't, isn't that the, isn't that the accusation that comes out? Well, they're just doing that for money. Very common, isn't it? To evangelists, preachers, teachers. The truth of the matter is most pastors do not live very high in the hog. They're not doing this for money, but there have been abuses. I, I can't deny that. Can't deny that. And so that's that's something that Paul says, look, I, I don't want to have that tension. I'm gonna be a tent maker. Yeah, you know what? Being a tent maker was not very glamorous. It was a very blue collar job. Yeah, and our apostle he's a tent maker. But he says, No, I I would rather do that and get that out of the way than have someone accuse me of saying he does this for money. But it also removes this hindrance, right? Let's say someone is a very generous patron. Someone who's who's giving a lot. In fact, they start to become dependent upon that person's giving. And then the person says, hey, you know, pastor, apostle, whoever, what what you've been talking about, about uh, sexual immorality, that's a little close to home. You need to tone that down. And if it doesn't, well, you know, some of my support, it may just go away. Paul doesn't want to be unhealthily connected to somebody who's saying, I'm giving a lot, now do my will. He's not going to put himself in a place where he's going to be dependent upon another, where he's going to be the slave of another. That's why he says in verse 1, am I not free? Paul's not beholden to anyone financially. So he goes on to say, and I am not writing this in hope that you will do such things for me. For I'd rather die than allow anyone to deprive me of this boast. Whoa. That's a pretty strong statement. Now the word boast may take us back a little bit. A little disconcerting. It seems a smack of, of pride or, or self-promotion. In fact, Paul rebukes the Corinthians for their spiritual pride four times, especially in verse uh, chapter 4, verse 7. But Paul is using this word more like that of a claim, a truth that protects him from those who would question his motives in proclaiming the gospel. And so we come to the crux of the matter as Paul says he's going to divest himself of any ability to boast, where he talks about his apostolic compulsion. Verse 16, yet when I preach the gospel, I cannot boast, for I am compelled to preach. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. If I preach it voluntarily, I have a reward. If not voluntarily, I'm simply discharging the trust committed to me. What then is my reward? Just this that in preaching the gospel, I may offer it free of charge, so not to make full use of my rights as a preacher of the gospel. As I was preparing this passage, the, the thing that struck me is Paul coming wholeheartedly to the point of saying, Woe to me if I don't preach the gospel! I don't know if that strikes you or not, but it, it strikes me. This is not an overly eager seminary student who's got a what I call a preaching itch. Someone who wants to get in the pulpit and, and show what stuff he's got. No, he says, woe to me if I don't preach the gospel. The good news that reached into my life and it, it grabbed me. It changed my life. The gospel, folks, is not good advice. The gospel is not, hey, here's what you can do to live a fulfilled life. To make you healthy, wealthy, and wise. Here's the information now. Go ahead and do it. No. The gospel is good news. Because we were paralyzed and stuck in our sin in a place where we could do nothing for ourselves. That God had to invade history himself. Come and live this life that we couldn't live. Die a death to pay a debt. We cannot pay because we would be eternally condemned. And conquer what we could not conquer. That is what is apprehending Paul. That is what has reached down into his heart. It's life-changing, status-mending, destiny-shifting, eternity-altering, identity-imputing, giving us joy, hope, life, and the power of the living God invading our lives by His Holy Spirit. It has reached down into Paul's life and apprehended him. Has it reached down into our lives? And apprehended us. See, that's what struck me. Do I say, woe to me, if I don't preach the gospel. Now let me take a little pressure off, okay? Say, Pastor, do you want me to preach? No. The, the verb there is actually, just proclaim the good news. Woe to me if I don't evangelize. But I don't tell people the good news about Jesus Christ. That's what it actually says. See, Paul was so moved by what God had done in his life. Had reached down in his life, changed him. In fact, he says later on in this letter, he says, I am the least of the apostles. I do not even deserve to be called an apostle. Because I persecuted the church of God. but." By the grace of God, I am what I am. And that grace in me was not without effect. He goes on to say, I worked harder than all of them. Not to boast of himself. And he says, yet it was Jesus in me. See, Paul is so captured by the gospel that it has apprehended him. And Again, my question for us is, has it apprehended me? Has it apprehended you? Is it still amazing grace? Do we in our head and in our heart know that we are heading for hell if we don't have Him? That we are desperately in need of Him? Not less and less as I have in Christ, but more and more. Because I come, I become more and more aware of my sinfulness. More and more aware of my need for Him. Is He capturing our hearts? Compelling us to tell others about Him? Maybe God is not calling us to go across the world, but maybe He's calling us to go across the street, across the hallway. I don't know. I'm struck by Paul saying, woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. And again, in holding this up, I'm not condemning anyone. I'm just asking is my heart is your heart moving in that direction? Are there things that we are willing to give up? Rights that we're willing to give up in order that that good news would go forward? You know, we're heading toward the season of Easter. And we're not a church that um participates in the the discipline of Lent. That's a a whole other thing, and I think it's a good thing. But Let me say this. I I just want to encourage you as we head toward Easter to be in God's Word, especially in the the narratives towards the, the crucifixion and the resurrection. Remembering what He has done to reach down, to save you, to save me. God gave up His only Son. He allows Him to take upon Himself the penalty that should have been mine that should have been yours. He does it willingly. Jesus is forsaken, crying out, My God, My God, why have You forsaken Me? In order that we would not be forsaken. That Gospel, that good news needs to invade our hearts. It needs to capture us again. And if it hasn't captured your heart yet, I pray that it will. Because it is the life that God offers. It's not a way, it is the way to God. The way to eternal life. I want to encourage you to preach this good news to yourself. Say, I. I am a sinner saved by God's grace. He has reached down and captured me and made me his own. Because of his goodness and his love. It's nothing to do with me. Preach that to yourself. But if you do have the opportunity to share the gospel with somebody, don't wait until you have the feelings to do it, okay? Sometimes we just need to operate in obedience and then have God need us there. But I'm just asking about the condition of our hearts to get to a place where it is, once again, captured by His grace, by His gospel. And we can honestly say, woe to me if I don't tell others the good news about the Lord Jesus Christ. i got to tell others because what He has done let me pray for us and then Aaron and the worship team will come and close us. Again, Lord, this this word is challenging. We can't do it ourselves. We